I'm Liza Hanks, and welcome to Life, Death, Law, a podcast about something we all share and almost never talk about, death. If you want to have an empowered and meaningful end of life and leave a good emotional legacy so you're not leaving havoc and chaos and regret in your wake, you've you got to sort of be an adult and step up early. That's Katie Butler, an award-winning journalist and the author of Knocking on Heaven's Door, a memoir about the death of her parents and an expose of the way that our medical system incentivizes and supports aggressive medical care at end of life. I asked Katie to be on Life, Death, Law for two reasons. First, I love Knocking on Heaven's Door. It's a great book and a great read. It's not easy to tell any story, let alone one about the decline and death of your beloved parents. And combine that with investigative journalism that places their story in the political context that shaped it. And she manages to do both. The second reason that I asked Katie to be on the show is that she has an upcoming book, The Art of Dying Well, that's due out in January of 2019. In that book, Katie seeks to offer solutions to the problems she identifies in knocking on heaven's door. How best to age well and create the natural death that most of us want to have. Okay, so Katie, thank you so much for being on Life, Death, Law. I'm thrilled to have you here. Thank you. And I'd love to talk to you about both of your books, the, the one you wrote in 2013, Knocking on Heaven's Door, and the one that you have coming out in January of 2019, The Art of Dying Well. Maybe we could start with Knocking on Heaven's Door, if you don't mind, because honestly, so many people that I work with, and me too, have had to deal with the decline and death of our parents, often in our 50s, as you did. But, you know, hardly anybody ends up writing a book about it. Most people are too exhausted to write a book about it. It's enough to go through it. It's very difficult. It's very, very hard. Oh, yeah, there was a, there was a moment there right before my father passed away when the hospice worker said, how are you doing? I said, if he doesn't die soon, I think I might. You know, I just had it. it took me right to the edge. Exactly, exactly. And I wanted to write about those sort of taboo emotions. I wanted to write a book that was not an exemplary book of how perfectly we handled everything, but more a book that would make people feel less alone and also explain to them the kind of huge cultural and economic forces that are making this process of caregiving and the final years of aging and dying so, so difficult. I really think we are facing, having made through our technologies and our advances great progress and also actually made the process of aging and dying in some ways more difficult than it's ever been in history. So that was sort of the point of the book. And that's why the book is really a hybrid and it zigzags back and forth between me telling my father's story after he had a major stroke at the age of 79 and my mother's story and my story as we became his caregivers. But it also zigzags into the development of medical devices in the 1950s in this sort of explosion of innovation after World War II and how those medicines and those drugs have become so profit-seeking and so market-oriented that they have really 
deform the shape of medicine. Yeah, and I think that's so true. I mean, I don't work with anybody who tells me that they want to have a loved one die in the ICU or die after aggressive medical treatment that provided no real quality of life at the end for their loved ones, but they find themselves bewildered and stuck in a medical situation that they are really not equipped to handle. Yeah. And you write at the end of your book, I'm going to quote you here because I thought it was so true and important to frame our conversation together, which is that things that you wish you'd known, that the natural death is no longer the default pathway. If you want it for yourself or for someone you love, it's up to you to seek it out. And it's harder than you may think. It is not enough to sign all the right papers or to tell your friends that you never want to be plugged into machines because important decisions must be made long before your gurney is brought to the door of the emergency room after a panicked call to 911. So here I am, an estate planning attorney, and I help people sign all those right papers, and I encourage them to tell them exactly what they do and don't want at the end of life, and it falls apart sometimes, or often, uh, yes. when when the end of life really does come. So what I was hoping you could share in this podcast with my listeners are just some of the really practical things that you want people to know long before they get themselves uh, into the emergency room. Well, the first is not so practical. It's really sort of spiritual, which is to start really coming to terms with the reality of death like five years before you think you're going to die. It's, it's when you first really contract a serious incurable illness. You and all of your family need to come to emotional terms with that long before that panic trip to the ICU. And I think the failure of medicine, which is that these difficult conversations are not being held early when they should be held, you know, long before it seems necessary. Um, so you have families showing up at the ICU or wherever, and they're completely shocked that a 92-year-old relative is about to die. It's partly a failure of medicine, but it's partly our failure, too, our running away because coming to terms with the reality of death is a very slow experience. It does not happen in a half an hour conversation outside the ICU. So that's the beginning is just the practicality of emotionally starting to talk about death. A friend of mine's mom died at 99, but from about 70 on, whenever he came to see her, she would talk about who was going to get which face and tell him, ask him to tell her, you know, which things he wanted. And at first he would, he would really try to shine her on and stop her from talking about it. But he said that over time he realized she was getting him used to the reality of the fact that she would eventually die before him. So this that emotional task to start with. When I work with clients, you know, they almost always say, well, if I die and I stop them right there and I say, you must be onto something that I'm not onto because I think the proper term is when, you know, it's an inevitability and yes, there's no exactly. harm in, there's a tremendous benefit in, you know, addressing this honestly uh, and clearly when we can, but so few of us do. And in fact, an earlier uh, episode of this podcast is called Talking About the Hard Stuff with a developmental psychologist about children, but we, we got into adult children too, because if you don't, aren't in the habit of having these conversations with kids when they're young, it's certainly difficult to have them as you get older. Yeah. Um, so I agree with you completely. And I have to say, I thought the lawyers in Knocking on Heaven's Door were kind of embarrassingly useless to you and your mother as you try, as you try <laughs> to get your father's yeah. pacemaker turned off, because... Maybe you could talk a little bit about your frustrations with, with the legal documents that you had in place and that did absolutely nothing to accomplish your goals. 
Right. Well, I mean, the immediate one on the surface is my father's advanced directives, like almost all advanced directives, say nothing about dementia and nothing about pacemaking. So they tend to be documents that, frankly, I think were drawn up more for the needs of the medical profession than anyone else. They're really documents that say very little other than if I'm in a coma or within six months of dying, please disconnect life support, you know, or don't put me on life support. The problems of modern death are so much more complex and subtle. It's a real challenge to, you can't put everything in those documents. And even more importantly to me, we are reducing what are really major emotional and spiritual tasks and trying to shove them into legalistic and medicalistic language. And the result is many of us feel sort of left out of the room. We feel disempowered. We feel we can't even talk about the things that matter most to us as we approach our death. No, I I completely agree. And I think that, um, you know, that's one of the things that I try to do in my practice is and that's the purpose of this podcast, in fact, is to land these documents in the reality that we all meet them in, which is real life. Yes, exactly. You wrote about that beautifully at the very end of Knocking on Heaven's Door when you said, the work of death doesn't start on the day that someone says to you, your mother is dying. No one may ever say this. There may always be another yeah, treatment because... Yeah. Certainly that was my experience and many of my clients and friends. The end of life is so gray and the doctors never tell you when you're there, right? Yeah. Yeah, and partly because they don't always know, you know, but they sort of hide behind the fact that they can't, what is it, prognosticate perfectly. Again, you know, sort of going, looping back to what we were saying earlier about sort of advice about seeking out natural death. I think part of it is you need to coach and coax your doctors to be frank with you. You need to start saying very early on, what is the usual trajectory of this illness? Because you want to know not only about, you know, doc, how many weeks or months do I have? More than that, you want to know, am I going to have a prolonged period of disability? Am I going to need caregivers? Am I going to have dementia? Am I going to need um, to update my advanced directives while I still can and change them maybe, depending on the course of the illness? You need to really reassure, really the shoe's on the wrong foot, but you need to actually reassure your doctors and say things like, I'm the kind of person who needs honest information so I can plan. And then when they tell you and they tell you bad news, don't attack them for being too blunt or too tactless. Thank them. They are doing you a favor. You may not feel like it's a favor right that day, but, you know, a month from then, you will feel like it was a favor because you will be empowered. Reality is empowering. you got to seek it out, unfortunately. You have to be very proactive to seek it out. And then... You know, then you're in a much better shape to face whatever it is that you're facing. One thing you and I, I was really interested in talking about was that, to me, documents like Five Wishes, which is an advanced directive that also talks about things like, do you want your dog on the bed? Do you want someone massaging you? Are there particular songs that you would like playing? Or do you want silent? Are you the kind of person who wants Willie Nelson singing on the road again on your headphones? God forbid that you bring in a harpist to the person who really wants Willie Nelson, you know? I mean, and these questions, there's no way to boil, boil these down into like a legalistic advanced directive. And I, I mean, sadly, these directives are so often ignored. 
I think their purpose is much more to open up the conversation within the family and try to get everybody on board. And I do hear from palliative care uh, people that the documents that lawyers draft tend to be so cryptic that they provide them with absolutely no helpful information when they need it. Yeah. But we're trained to be risk adverse and, and we're trained to say less rather than more. And so, you know, it is a struggle to come up with a yeah. document that's effective. But, you know, I was actually wondering, so so you wrote Knocking on Heaven's Door and it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful melding, you know, of a personal story and investigative journalism on the the forces that created the reality that you were dealing with at the end of your parents' life. It's beautiful in that way. And I'm really, I would like to invite you to talk about your new book, uh, The Art of Dying Well, because I feel like as I reread the very last part of Knocking on Heaven's Door today, that I could see the beginning of that second book right there at the end of the first book. And so I'd love you to uh, to share with us, you know, what what you, why you felt like you wanted to write book two and what it's about. So, You're right. In some ways, it's an expansion of those last two chapters, because I finished knocking on Heaven's Door feeling that I had done an excellent job of laying out the problem, but a much less excellent job of laying out a solution. And my first thought for the new book was that it was going to be a really short, aphoristic book modeled on something like Simplify Your Life, if you remember, that was a really wonderful book of the 80s about how to calm down and slow down and simplify your life. Oh, sadly, I missed it, but I better read it now. Oh, it's fabulous. You should still read it. You really should. It's it's even more useful as you age. But anyway, it was going to be this very, or a book like Food Rules by um, Michael Pollan, which was sort of a boiling down of the lessons of his other books. But it turned out to be so much more complex. I realized I had to quote geriatrics doctors. I had to have other people's stories. And that. so the book really morphed over time. What it's become is an attempt to be a map for not only a good end of life, but a good passage through aging and getting sick and eventually dying. Because as you, as I said in that part that you quoted earlier, you cannot solve this problem on the deathbed. You cannot solve it three months before the deathbed. If you want to have an empowered and meaningful end of life and leave a good emotional legacy so you're not leaving havoc and chaos and regret in your wake, you've you got to sort of be an adult and step up early. And so that's why it's called The Art of Dying Well, because... Art, you, you can do an art better or worse. You can learn an art and you continue to have moral agency when you practice an art. I don't see dying people and sick people as purely passive victims to be taken care of. I really think we can remain empowered and continue to shape our destinies. So that's sort of a long intro. But what I might, what it's, it's very practical. The book itself is very practical, although it does weave in the spiritual and the practical. But essentially, it says, look at your later life from maybe 50 on as divided into seven distinct stages. So we start with the resilience of the healthy 50s or 60s, when you can still reverse health conditions, and you can start setting yourself up for a good, healthy old age. And then it progresses through the challenges of aging and decline. 
So there's a chapter on decline that is very much about reducing medications and reducing reliance on medications because they start to do more harm than good, many of them. Then there's a chapter on coping with increasing levels of disability, perhaps not being able to drive anymore, how to cope, um, both spiritually and practically. And each chapter also refers to the new sets of medical allies that you need at each successive stage. So in the disability chapter, I talk a lot about occupational therapy and PT. And then, you know, later I talk about, you know, palliative care or hospice and other very useful forms of medicine. But each of these seven stages really requires a pivot. It requires a change in your expectations of life and of medicine and a change in the people who can be your allies so that you continue to maintain a high quality of life. So it progresses through that and into a chapter called House of Cards, which is about um, fragility and frailty when you really need a physician house call service, for example, you need to do everything you can to stay out of the emergency room if you want to die at home, and also if you want to live as healthy as possible a life. So it goes through that, through preparing for dying, through coping with terminal diagnoses, and then to the process of dying itself. As you were writing that book, did you did you wish that your parents had read it? I would have done some things differently if I had known then what I know now. For example, my, there was a point where my, when my father was frail, he fell and he actually fractured a, an orbital bone and he was sent first to the ER at our local hospital and then they sent him to Yale New Haven Hospital to be checked out for brain surgery. He was way past the time when brain surgery was an option. It would, you know, and while he was in the hospital, he developed delirium, which is very common among old and frail people, especially demented people. And he came back in much, much worse shape than he would have if my mother had simply wiped the blood off his face and put him to bed, literally, you know? So now I know that I would have intervened and said, no, he's not going to go to Yale. He's going to stay at the community hospital for a day or two, and then he's coming home. I think I would have had more guts and power and confidence in my own intuitive instincts anyway. I I think it'll help me. It's already changed how I behave about my own health. I've become much more physically active as a result of writing the book. You know, I swim 60 laps a day, and my own gait and balance has improved a great deal. Just so, even though I'm three years older now, I'm actually healthier. I think it's going to help guide me. It's helped me expand my own advanced directive. So I think it's it's definitely made changes. I actually had a great deal of respect for how my parents handled their aging and dying. If we'd all known what we ended up knowing, we would probably have never allowed the pacemaker to go in. And if we had, there would have been extremely frank talks at that time about what the plans were for deactivating it when it became a burden rather than a blessing. Yeah, no, I think that that makes, you know, so much sense. And one of the things about your books that I I like so much is that I think, you know, death is this thing that is 100% universal and yet so seldom shared. Um, We're we're all going through this experience in this kind of isolated, fragmented way. Yeah. 
I mean, I have a strange job, right? I talk about this all day long. I've talked about this all day long for 17 years with hundreds of people, but they're not talking to each other. Um, so often the only point place where all of this comes together kind of tends to be the worst place, right? Nobody goes to a yeah. for compassion. Nobody goes, lawyers are not allowed to share the, the, the details of their other yeah. clients' journeys, except in sort of general ways. And, and doctors have a whole different task. And so it comes to writers, it comes to storytellers. I think it comes to some other way that we can share this so that we know that we're all in it together. And I, I really loved your, uh, you, you made some analogy to the natural birth movement. Yeah. Um, I, and I have two kids and I remember that when I was pregnant, reading about other women's experiences going through this incredible transformation was kind of beautiful and empowering. And it gave me a lot of confidence going into it, although it was still kind of a circus. But there's very little up until now. There's very, hasn't been that much really honest, you know, travel guide writing about this journey that we're on. So it's great that you're doing this. You know, I, I think people find themselves in it. Thank you. But maybe you should start support groups. Maybe you should start support groups with your clients. Maybe we need, I'm a huge fan of groups, any kind of mutual support group. I really think it's wonderful. And hopefully people will come to my book readings. And But I've experienced my book readings as places where people start to share with each other and we start to ignite these conversations because I think we need huge amounts of lateral support connections rather than these hierarchical connections in terms of ways that we're trying to handle this. Um, it's wonderful that I'm writing books. Um, I'm one of the few lay voices out there writing books. I mean, obviously, Atul Gawande is, has written some really helpful, important books about this, but we need more lay voices. We need more caregiver voices and spouse voices. Because that validates the voice. Because, of course, nobody dies in a nice little box. It's not just medical. It's not just legal. It's not just spiritual. It's not just logistics. It's all of those things at the same time. Exactly. 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 And when we, well, when we reduce ourselves to one of those dimensions, we lose our power. You know, and that's the good thing about storytelling, because storytelling just naturally includes all the dimensions. You know, you don't have to work at it to make it happen, but it includes all of life. I haven't read your new book, right? Because it's not out yet. I've just read what you sent me about it. But I'm sure that you write about that pivot to finding different kinds of medical support. And I wondered if you could, you know, if you had to boil it down to maybe three tips for families or five tips for families um, who are right now in the process of dealing with... Uh, probably somebody uh, in the, I would say, fifth to seventh stages that you've outlined. Um, what, what, help, what advice could you give them about finding the right kind of doctors? Wow. Oh, well, let me give you what I think of as my tips. The first is know the trajectory of your illness. The second is understand the burdens as well as the benefits of any treatment that you're offered. The third is try to postpone disability rather than postponing death. There comes a point where some people want to live as long as possible, no matter what their condition. And that's probably 10% of the population. And the rest of us are somewhere on a different spectrum. And there are conditions of life that we feel make life no longer worth living. Therefore, I think that at almost all of these stages, 
you need to be very clear on whether a treatment that you're offered might extend your life, but at the cost of making you more rather than less disabled. You need to know where you are on that trajectory, Where, which of those seven stages are you at? Because once you get to the fifth, sixth, seventh stage, treatments intended to extend your longevity can actually worsen your quality of life by making you more disabled. For example, a surgery. A, a surgery, a heart valve surgery at 92, and you come in walking, and you, and, you, and you leave with a wonderfully fixed up heart and you never walk again. This happens and it happens frequently. However, if you are in this, my state of life, you're 70, you're really healthy, you're swimming 60 laps a day, it's a totally different uh, you know, set of questions. So you've got to know where you are in the trajectory and you also have to know the risks that you're facing. Do you, do you advise people to get a second opinion? Because I'm wondering... Doctors are not always so forthcoming about the risks and benefits uh, to different procedures. I think that's a great idea. I think second opinions are a good idea, but you also have to trust your own gut, you know? And if you have a doctor who is not forthcoming, it's just like, it's just like uh, investing in a mutual fund. You know how they say never invest in any thing you can't understand, any scheme you can't understand? It, it's very much the same, in my opinion, about a surgery. If you do not have a sense of clarity from the doctor you're talking to and you do not feel your questions are answered, you need to find another doctor. Fire that doctor and find another doctor. There are doctors out there now, especially, for example, geriatricians. If you can find a good primary care doctor or a good geriatrician, it's worth their weight, they're worth their weight in gold. And even, you know, these um, concierge doctors that may charge you 1200 a year, if you have the money, it's money I recommend spending. You need to understand your own values, and you need to make sure your doctors understand your values, which means you need to know what makes your life worth living now and what kind of treatments you would reject if you could not be restored or maintain that life. You know, for me, I think it's expressing myself. I think it's writing. It's being able to give and receive love. And at this age... I think if I were unable to feed myself, that probably would be like a deal breaker for me. I would not want great effort being made to keep me alive or send me through a surgery if the outcome would be that I could not feed myself. It's important to really know what these deal breakers are, and they're different for everybody. Not everybody is going to fall at the same place on the spectrum as I do. And having seen my father go through dementia and the terrible effect not only on him, but on the whole family, because I consider the whole family the patient, not just the person who's ill. You know, I don't want to put my relatives through that. So as you know, I've written a very detailed dementia directive to make it very clear that if I have dementia and I need taking care of, I want no barriers placed in the way of a natural death, none. Even if I seem to be having a good time, I don't want it because I, right now, I'm a human being with moral agency. I care about the people who I love and who love me. And I do not want to put them through that. And are you going to make that dementia directive? Uh, it's part of your book, right? So it will be available to the people who buy it? Right. It's part of the new book. Well, I'm, you've been really generous with your time, but I wondered if we could just take a few minutes here at the end to talk some about the, not the medical and not the logistical aspects of dying well, but the 
spiritual aspects of dying well that I do believe you write about in this new book a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And also the value of hospice care, because in Knocking on Heaven's Door, you make the point, and I think it's a well-taken point, I see it in my practice all the time, that patients are often referred to hospice care in the last two or three weeks of their life, when they could have benefited so much from slowing down and taking time to be with the people they love and to be comfortable in the place that they want to be before they die. So I know those are two big topics, but I, I would love to have you touch on each of them just a bit before we're done. I have a chapter called Preparing to Die. And I talk about how people often intuitively go through a process that hospice doctors sort of summarize as, thank you, I love you, please forgive me, I forgive you, and goodbye. There's that cleaning up of relationships that you have an opportunity to do. A lot of people go through some kind of life review where they really think about what their life meant, and they create some kind of memorial sort of to themselves. One man in my book had been in the Pacific Theater during World War II, and he created a huge, after he was diagnosed with esophageal cancer, he created this huge map of everywhere his battleships had gone, you know, who'd been in charge of the ships, who his commanding officers were, and also had long, long talks with another veteran about what they'd experienced. So there are a lot of ways that people have an opportunity to make sense of their lives, which I think it's a great idea to do. Um, I also include a beautiful sort of deathbed prayers from all the, all the big religions and a beautiful, beautiful ceremony that was created by oncology nurses for honoring a body in the hospital because a lot of people are going to die in a hospital. And so I also have a lot of suggestions on how to make a hospital death meaningful and, and empowered and sacred even though the environment is not, you know, perfect. So people do charge into ICUs and ask to have the patient move to a room with lights and, you know, bring out iPods and play music. And, and so it is impossible. It is possible to even in these extreme environments to actually bring the sacred in if you have the confidence to do it. And sometimes nurses will support you to do it. And I think there's a way to bring the sacred back in, even in environments where it's not particularly invited, but it can also be welcomed when you actually just go ahead and do it. I have a story in my new book about a woman who is dying of pancreatic cancer and actually dying of the chemotherapy. And she goes on hospice. She recovers from the side effects of the chemo, including a terrible intestinal infection, and she lives very well for another nine months. She goes back to work. She has good relationships with her kids. She has very, very good pain management and pain control because hospice nurses are the primo experts in America on controlling pain. So that's sort of the best of what hospice has to offer. And my advice is to go have an informational meeting, talk on the phone, explore it. Even if you're not sure you're, quote, ready yet, explore it sooner than later and get some basic information and see how comfortable you are with the hospice. 
research shows that people on hospice actually often outlive the people who continue to do with the searing, harrowing treatments right up to the end. I have more to say, though, which is unfortunately, in the process of writing the book, I came to realize that hospice is not for as many people as I wish it were. The problem is that the payments made to hospices by Medicare have effectively shrunk over the last 20 years. The result is that hospice only provides nursing visits. It does not provide bedside care, hands-on bedside care, which people desperately need. And the result is that people often burn out their support systems if they're on hospice for months and months and they either don't have a very deep you know, family or friend support system or they don't have money. Unfortunately, I now have to say that maybe a residential hospice is going to be a better solution for some people, or maybe skilled nursing is going to be a better solution for some people with a palliative care emphasis. And so, and not everybody has the money for that, you know, but the reality is doctors tend to overestimate how long you're going to live by four to six times. In other words, if they think you're going to live six months, you will probably live six weeks. It's terrible. People fall between the cracks and you have to be very, very persistent. If somebody has what we call the dwindles, you know, they may have many things a little bit wrong, but there's no one outstanding thing wrong. And they don't have one of these clear diagnoses and they may get rejected by hospice. And then you have to be very persistent and come back in a month and say, look, you know, a month ago she could feed herself and now she can't. Or a month ago she weighed a certain amount and now she weighs 10 pounds less. I think we can hugely improve our chances of good deaths, hugely improve our chances of good deaths, by which I mean meaningful deaths in a sense of community with comfort, with pain controlled, with what matters most to you present in the room, whether that's your dog or your flowers or poetry, um, people you love. All of this, I think, is extremely possible if we face our fears. The only thing I want to say is we are struggling with broken systems. Don't beat yourself up if either you or someone you love does not have the perfect death that people had in mind, because it's also part of the nature of dying that we're not in control, and that spiritual acceptance is also part of the picture. And acceptance of whatever kindness comes our way, whatever random luck and fortune comes our way, it may come from very unexpected places, and it deserves honoring. You've written one amazing book, knocking on heaven's door that outlines the problems and challenges that we face in assisting the people we love to die a natural and graceful death uh, that most people want. And now you've got a new book coming out, The Art of Dying Well, that provides uh, people with lots of practical tips to do their best to find that natural death and advocate for what their loved ones need. We appreciate that, our, your, your reading public. And uh, even though the system is fraught, you know, and fractionalized and got all sorts of problems. I don't want to end this podcast on a down note because I think that the work you're doing will help people do what they can, where they can, to do the best they can for the people they love. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. And I think we should all be grateful for that. You've just listened to my interview with Katie Butler, 
author of Knocking on Heaven's Door, and the soon-to-be-released Art of Dying Well. To learn more about Katie's work, go to her website, www.katiebutler.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of Life, Death, Law. To find out more about today's episode, or to send me a question or a suggested topic for future podcasts, go to lifedeathlaw.com, send me an email at lifedeathlawpodcast at gmail.com, or call me on the Life Death Law phone line at 669-232-0872. That's 669-232-0872. To subscribe to Life Death Law, go to iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. So take care, and remember, when it comes to life and death and law, we are all in the same boat. Until next time, I'm Liza Hanks. Bye.